Welcome to a mildly, musically explicit edition of the Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, Ring of Fire, The Young Turks, The Onion Radio News, Counterspin, and The Colbert Report. Roxanne, this week a new book came out by Ron Suskind suggesting that the White House forged a letter to back up their pre-war claims about Iraq. Well, there are other revelations in the book. It turns out President Bush, early on in his term, got very upset about the way his big cabinet-level meetings were going. Specifically, he was upset that the participants in the meeting were always doing what? <laughs> you know this. Um, no, I don't. I just have on dozens of wonderful Telling answers. the truth. No. <laughs> Was it something uh, as simple as, say, taking notes? Um, no. I know I know he was very upset. He never wanted cell phones no, or not calls. No, not that. That's all true, but no. Uh, I'll give you a hint. He had to keep clearing his throat and pointing at the big seal on the back of his chair. Uh, not calling him Mr. President. No. In oh. fact, they weren't doing it to him at all. That was the problem. They weren't talking to him. Instead, they were talking to... Dick Cheney. Exactly right. <laughs> He was upset because everybody was addressing their remarks to Cheney instead of to him. Ah. Apparently. Well, Cheney had them all covered. Yeah. He was the one holding yeah, the gun. Apparently, after a few such meetings, the president told Cheney that he was upset that the participants, and these would be people like President Bush's Secretary of State and President Bush's Secretary of Energy and President, for all we know, President Bush's own mother, they were addressing Vice President Cheney instead of President Bush. Plus, Bush was annoyed that Cheney kept making him sit over in the kids' situation room. <laughs> anyway, Mr. Big Deal, Vice President, was very gracious, according to Susskind, about the whole thing. He agreed to remain silent during the meetings and just take notes. After which the president and Dick Cheney could meet in private so that Cheney could then tell the president what to do. Sitting for lunch in a square in this town, this town that I'm new to, new fellow from my new town, sat me down and explained it to me. How I spin from him, I spin from myself The center can double the speed of the crust Thank you, my treacherous friends I'm cringing for myself when I cringe for you Kicking off the show with us is Henry Rollins. We've wanted to have him on the show for a long time. Henry's the former singer with Black Flag and now fronts the Rollins Band. But the music is just the beginning. He's an actor, an author. He's a talk show host on Independent Film Channel. This guy is a renaissance man. Henry, it only takes a little bit of digging to see the total picture of how you've spent at least the first 40, or 40 years or so of your life. I mean, it's remarkable. 25 books, 10 spoken word DVDs, 20 spoken releases, 30 musical releases with Black Flag, Rollins Band, comedy tours, U.S. I mean, it just goes on forever. Where are you headed now? I mean, <laughs> well, I, I'm just trying to keep it interesting. 
I, I came from the minimum wage working world, so I know what my alternatives are. Mm -hmm. And knowing that keeps me having really no fear with the, wanting to check out anything else that comes my way. So uh, if, if there's a movie audition or something I can go up for, I don't shy away from it because I really don't have much to lose. Mm -hmm. Also, I'm just a very, I'm a very curious person. Uh, I try and manufacture that curiosity. Henry, have you ever gone back and looked at some of the old black and white grainy films of, of the rise of fascism in Europe where you'd have the industrialists take over, they take over the media, they take over the judiciary, they take over all these parts and these pieces. You know, you're humanitarian. I think you do the greatest job there. I mean, as, as, as I was reading parts of that, it's almost like you could see those grainy films. And I, you've consistently been willing to talk about issues of power in the U.S. When you came out with humanitarian, I'm very different from getting the van or black coffee blue. Oh, yeah, sure. This was something to where you had to read and you had to think about. It was great stuff. What, what made you do that? I, if, if people haven't read this, they need to. Well, it, it's just watching, you know, doing a lot of USO tours gives you an interesting spin on things, and I do a lot of that. And also just looking at the... The way the power moves, it's, it's always with the money with these people. It, it was interesting to me, and I'm sure you've talked about this on Ring of Fire, the level of hatred and sheer venom tossed at Al Gore with the inconvenient truth. Yes. It's as if the documentary was about abducting children <laughs> you, 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 with the level of hatred that, yeah, that yeah. comes at this guy. And you realize he's obviously hit his mark mm. and, and he is he's ruining someone's very wonderful and long uh, crafted game you know the the, the petrodollar yes and it, you know and something like with, with hitler I, I also noticed the same thing on the fox network you know mm. duh. They, they hate intellectuals it, reading books and, and changing one's mind and being up for discussion is anathema to these people. And, and they become angry and, and they, they want to feminize and emasculate any man with an opinion that doesn't go along with theirs. And that's the tack they take. Like, I bet those intellectuals won't be watching the Super Bowl this weekend. <laughs> like, wow. <laughs> it, so reading, and, and Hitler hated them too. Stalin hated them. All tyrants hate the intellectual. And they're the first to go along with homosexuals and anyone who thinks differently. They're all lumped together. And in America, I think that's the same. Look at this level of sheer homophobia. I mean, I watch the president very carefully. A, mm -hmm. it's always an interesting exercise in the English language <laughs> and the mangling and misuse of. And I, you know, and he's my president. For better or for worse, I didn't vote for him, but he's my guy. Like, the next person will be my guy. You, know, you don't really mean that, do you? Yeah. I, okay. I, 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 well, in that, I watch all the State of the Union addresses. I go to WashingtonPost.com. I download the transcript. Yeah, yeah. I watch the greatest hits. I want to see what the guy's saying. Just like I watch any documentary on white power movements, I want to hear what those guys are saying, too. Neither party I'm, I'm enamored with. But all I'm saying is I want to hear what's on their mind because the guy's got the keys of the kingdom for the moment. Right. And uh, a couple of uh, State of the Union addresses ago, I'm sure you remember this, the president said, I, I uphold the sanctity of marriage, which is basically lip service to, you know, the psychotic wing of the, Christ, the Christian fundamentalists mm -hmm. by basically saying, you homosexuals are on notice. Code, code talk. It's yeah. Code and like, you know, a sanctity of marriage, on its face, you can't really argue with that. Like, I, I protect it, too. I'm not married, but if you want to, we'll write on. But if Bill and Tom want to, the understanding is it's between a man and a woman. And if you, your gay and want to get married, 
This is the president saying politely, don't even think about it. And then you see Katrina, you go, wow, you don't like poor black people either. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I was, I've kind of been lightly battling with a, a Republican in D.C. back and forth by email. And I said yesterday to her, you know, you know, even with Katrina, even Reagan would have helped those people. Sure. You know, I don't think Reagan was a, a necessarily awful man, but he, he wouldn't have sat by and, and let Slip this awful thing happen, and you know we don't talk about Katrina enough. That that that's still this appalling. Yeah, problem. well, living down here on the coast, you really realize it. Um, I think it's really fascinating when he goes off script, because as soon as he goes off script and, and starts ransacking his mind for the English language, that's when. The fun starts, and that's when he comes up with spatial <laughs> entrepreneur to describe an astronaut. And you know he means S-P-A-C-I-A-L, which I looked up. I don't think there is one of those. There is S-P-A-T-I-A-L, which I think loosely defined as having to do with space. And so when he says those spatial entrepreneurs, and the hesitation between spatial and entrepreneurs when he did it, you can tell he's he's, he's busting an improv, and the A's are looking at each other. They all well, they all went to college and were awake for class. You know what I mean? And they look at each other going like, oh, here. Here he goes, and you know when he leaves rooms, you know he's surrounded. His cabinet are some of the finest minds of their generation. They fight for the dark side, but they're not stupid. <laughs> how are they attracted to that? You, you, exactly, I've observed the same thing. You wonder how they attracted, how, how they're attracted to a guy that says. Unleash the compassion, or I want to go to Mars. I yeah. love your stand-up on I want to go to Mars. Yeah, I, well, the, the, they're not. The, he, he's the representative of the corporation, and so when he leaves the room, they go, "Okay, now let 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 the adults go to work. Baby's gone to bed." Or, you know, go play with your ponies. Or go run. Go exercise. Go take three hours in the afternoon to go exercise as the President of the United States. I mean, I, I run a... a sleep, a, a, sleep more. Yeah, I run the smallest of independent record companies. I'm sitting in my office right now. If I took three hours to go work out, people here would go, wow, he's sure losing the plot. <laughs> Let's take this place from him before he, uh, you know, really screws an artist. And so, I, when I see what he's what he's done, what he's what he's enacted with all this stuff, it's basically a man who's not in charge. He's he's the the the, the face of it. And so. When he goes off script, when he starts using his mind, that's when you get into, you know, there's a saying in Tennessee, I think it's in, or a saying in Texas, I know it's in Tennessee, I guess it's in Texas, fool me once, shame on, that is, that's, that's the thing that his wife wakes up to every day and goes, my God, I need some Stoli and some Paxil. So Al Gore has given an interview to GQ, and I wish there was audio of it, but there isn't. So it, the, his answer that I'm going to read to you here is a little on the long side, but it's terrific and I think worth reading. Um, they had asked him the question about the Clintons, and, and he had answered, yeah, I saw uh, him, meaning Bill Clinton, today, and we see them every once in a while. And then the follow-up question is, 
really, how about all the warnings? Which is kind of a weird, vague question. I assume they mean the warnings uh, during the Clinton the, administration about uh, Oh, okay, yeah, I meant something else, but all right. Yeah. Right, and... I'm sorry, can you be specific about the warnings about what? Like, did you... September 11th, Al-Qaeda, etc. Oh, okay. Okay, and he's not specific here, but Gore answers it as to what they did and what Who's the Bush administration did. GQ. GQ, okay. Right. So, and I'm not going to read the, part, the editorials that they put in here. Just at one point in the middle of this, uh, they say his Gore's voice actually turns, and he says, voice angry now. And they've been kidding around for most of the interview, mm-hmm. right? And then he says that by the end, practically screaming now. Okay, that's the what they interject here. That's why so. you like him. Yeah, oh, absolutely. I mean, that's one of the reasons. And now there the content. Emotion and personality six years ago. Well, that's they asked him that in the interview as well. And he says, they I They punched the guy. Yeah. <laughs> I should have done the interview. Yeah. Um, I thought of that first. <laughs> and Gore says, hey, listen, I get it all the time, and you guys are probably right. And I'm sure that I failed to communicate properly in the 2000 election. You know, And it's easy. Look, it's just he's like it's a pressure cooker in a campaign. And it's easy to be joking around and bringing out your real personality when not every single thing you say is being picked apart. Right. And the other side isn't going to trying to destroy you. Right. So – those are good points, too. But he says, hey, look, I clearly did something wrong in 2000. And so anyway, he, let's get to the content. This is how Gore answers the question about warnings. He says, that's a separate question, and it's almost too easy to say I would have heeded the warnings. Referring, I guess, to what, how Bush reacted, he immediately takes it in that direction, which I already like. He says, in fact, I think I would have. I know I would have. We've had several instances when the CIA's alarm bells went off, and what we did when that happened was we had emergency meetings and called everybody together and made sure that all systems were go and every agency was hitting on all cylinders. And we made them bring more information and go into second and third and fourth level of detail and made suggestions on how we could respond in a more coordinated, more effective way. It is inconceivable to me that Bush would read a warning as stark and as clear as the one he received on August 6th of 2001. And according to some of the new histories, he turned to the briefer and said, well, you've covered your ass. And never called a follow-up meeting. Never made an inquiry. Never asked a single question. To this day, I don't understand it. And I think it's fair to say that he personally does, in fact, bear a measure of blame for not doing his job at a time when we really needed him to do his job. Hmm. And now the Woodward book has this episode that has been confirmed by the record that George Tenet, who was much abused by this administration, went over to the White House for the purpose of calling an emergency meeting and warning as clearly as possible about the extremely dangerous situation with Osama bin Laden and was brushed off. And I don't know why, honestly. And I mean, I understand how horrible this Congressman Foley situation with the instant messaging is, okay? I understand that. But what in this kind of, these kind of things produce a similar outrage? And, you know, I'm even reluctant to talk about it in these terms because it's so easy for people to hear this or read this as sort of a cheap political gameplay. I understand how it could sound that way. But damn it, whatever happened to the concept of accountability for catastrophic failure? This administration has been by far the most incompetent, inept, and with moral cowardice and obsequiousness. Sorry, I can't do it. Obsequiousness. Thank you. To their wealthy contributors and obliviousness to the public interest of any administration in modern history and probably in the entire history of the country. And despite all warnings, all the shrill call to arms, Bush has the nerve to then go on vacation in comprehensible 
Now you wonder why we want Al Gore to run. That's why we want Al Gore to run. That is a kick-ass statement that no politician right now has the courage to make. He's so shrill and unhinged. (laughs) I mean, he nailed it. That is exactly right. And with the kind of courage it takes to say it. When somebody says something that is so clearly true Mm -hmm. and that is so clearly unique because you don't hear it other places, it makes you sit back and go, whoa, wait a minute. Gore is right. Why don't other people say this? Well, it's it's funny because we've rambled on about the exact same points now for four years, over and over and over. And, I mean, the way he's able to just bore it all down, and uh, it just makes so much sense when you hear him say it. He's a really smart guy. He uh, he always was a really smart guy. You can't doubt. Look, I, I know a lot of conservatives and Republicans and people that aren't involved in politics and listen to our show. And some of the stuff that we, we talk about just goes in one ear, out the other. And it's, ah, oh, they're liberals, progressives, blah, blah, blah. They're just bitching. You can't get beyond what he said there. I mean, the way he articulated the sentiment of how is there no accountability for such a huge blunder? You know, we, there are two points to be made about that, Joe. And, and we make one of them, you know, you can't say that if George Bush had done anything after getting that memo, if he'd had four meetings, if he'd called secondary, that we could have stopped it. We, I don't know that right. we could have stopped it. We'll never know. But it is remarkable that he didn't try. Remarkable that he didn't try. And he, we know you can't stop it if you don't try. Bush has the nerve to then go on vacation. Incomprehensible. That's exactly right, Al Gore. Oh, you just came home from doing a beer. Tell me what you gonna do. Act a fool. Somebody broke in and cleaned out your crib. Boy, what you gonna do? Act a fool. Just bought a new pair and they scuffed your shoes. Tell me what you gonna do. Act a fool. Now them cops trying to throw you in them county blues. Boy, what you gonna do? Act a fool. Talk about gas, traps, cops and robbers. It's 911. Please call the Evacuate the building and trick the pigs. Since everybody want a piece, we gon' split your wig. See some fools slipped up and overstepped their boundaries. You about to catch a cold, stay the fuck around me. Your peeps talking about what kind of shit he on. You disappear like poof, bitch be gone. You think 12 gon' catch me? Give me a break. I'm supercharged with a hideaway license plate. It seems they wanna make a I have the executive authority. I will not be washed until I see fit. President Bush escaped from his weekly bath. It's the Onion Radio News. This is Doyle Redland reporting. A naked President Bush reportedly took off across the south lawn of the White House yesterday, marking the fourth time this year the mischievous chief executive has successfully evaded his weekly bath time. Chief of Staff Andrew Card told reporters the job of corralling the commander-in-chief can require great determination and resolve on the part of top administration officials. The president is very high-spirited, but... I think we can all agree that he is a lovable president who doesn't mean any harm. Bush was lured back into the White House with the promise of a Rice Krispie treat. Doyle Redland for The Onion Radio News, online at theonion.com. As I walk along, I wonder what went wrong with our love, love so strong.
Joining us now to discuss the impeachment of George W. Bush is Elizabeth de la Vega, a former federal prosecutor and author of the United States versus George W. Bush et al. She writes regularly for Truth Out, Public Record, Tom Dispatch, along with other outlets. Welcome back to Counterspin, Elizabeth de la Vega. Well, thanks for having me, Denise. Well, some of the press coverage was just trivializing. NPR host Rachel Martin said, quote, And most of Kucinich's resolution, I mean, he accused Bush of, you know, using false justification for the war in Iraq, breaking international law in the course of that invasion, failing to provide troops with proper equipment, and on and on and on, close quote. And her co-hosts laughed because listing lots of crimes is just funny, I suppose, and they all moved on to a story about blackjack dealers. That's been one strain of coverage, but some of the more serious stories used terms this was a parliamentary maneuver that Kucinich was forcing on the Congress, terms that made it sound like the process was something ad hoc or legally bizarre. Legally, is there anything extra official or odd about calling for impeachment of a president in the way that Representative Kucinich did? No, not at all. In fact, far from being odd, it's actually the sworn duty of Congress members under the Constitution to bring articles of impeachment if there are high crimes and misdemeanors. The process of impeachment is mentioned six times in the United States Constitution. It's the main and really the only way of holding the chief executive accountable for serious abuses of power that go to the governance of the country, which are precisely what are laid out in what I think are absolutely riveting form in the 35 Articles of Impeachment. Well, let's talk about the substance, which most corporate media seem to sort of simply set aside. Uh, law professor Jonathan Turley was on MSNBC, and he said that while he thought some of the claims were not really impeachable offenses, plenty of them were. He called it a target-rich environment, and even added that it must take a real effort for Democrats to walk from the floor to their offices and not trip over crimes. What, to your mind, are some of the most significant items here that make impeachment warranted? The first five or six articles relate to the fraud in connection with the Iraq war. The first one sets out the fact that the Bush administration orchestrated and created a huge propaganda campaign, which in and of itself is illegal. It's illegal for the executive branch to use funds that are appropriated to essentially sell its programs. So that in and of itself is illegal. And then what they did was they lied. So to me, and this is basically what I lay out in my book as well, they have committed a conspiracy to defraud the United States. And it is a vast conspiracy. And the word conspiracy, by the way, is just a neutral word that explains the fact of a crime, which is an agreement to defraud the people and Congress of the U.S. So I think that that really is the central and the most major violation that we have here. And for people to laugh about that when... It's not only the fact of its having been committed, but we have really literally millions of victims of this crime in the United States and in Iraq, of course. So I don't understand how people can look at this and say that this is something to scoff at. I don't think they would scoff at any other crime being committed right in front of their very eyes. And yet that's exactly what the press is doing. Well, lots of media attention seems to have focused on whether it's fair to say that Bush lied because maybe he actually believed what he was saying. Is all this focus on what was in Bush's mind and we, whether we call it a lie? Is, is that germane, really, legally? 
Well, a statement has to be intentionally made with knowledge that it's false in order to be a lie. But uh, there are two points to be made about that. First is that there are many ways to deceive, and lying is only one of them. And around the country every day, people are charged with fraud, which includes making statements recklessly without any regard to whether you know it's true or not. But as to the term lying, if people, and I'm not sure how many reporters have taken the time to actually read the Phase 2 report, but the information that's laid out there, which we've actually known about for years, sets forth many clear examples. And one egregious one is that when Bush and Cheney were telling the public over and over and over again that Iraq posed a threat and that Saddam Hussein would like nothing more than to hook up with terrorists and attack the U.S., he was being specifically told in every report by every different agency that Saddam Hussein had no intention of attacking the United States and would only end up doing so if he were himself attacked. So it's not a question of things being shades of gray. It was black and white. He was saying Saddam Hussein wanted to attack us. The intelligence people were saying, no, he does not. That's a lie. Well, what then, if anything, do you make of serious media's refusal to take this seriously? It, is, it isn't as though we didn't see barrels of ink devoted to impeaching Bill Clinton over violations of what I think anyone would have to acknowledge were, was an entirely different order. Now the very process seems to be uh, silly on its face to many reporters. Right. I think that there seems to be this Washington mindset, the inside the beltway mindset that impeachment, even for those who, who believe that the president has committed crimes, that impeachment is a waste of time, that the focus needs to be on the upcoming election. And I really think that the fact that it's been ignored could almost be interpreted as a sign of how strong these arguments are. Because if you actually address them, you really have no choice but to conclude that Congress needs to go forward and hold the president accountable for what he's done. So the only solution on the part of the press and Congress, apparently, is to just act as if it's not happening. It's almost as though the story is too big. Well, well, finally, and this you've kind of touched on this, but there seems to be this sense that because House Speaker Pelosi has declared impeachment off the table, that this is really a pointless exercise. But I wonder if you think there's a value to calling for impeachment, even if you are fairly certain that it's not going to happen. What is the value of, of, of doing it in any event? Oh, there are numerous benefits to it and really imperatives for doing it. One is that in the world today, the United States is seen practically as a pariah, and it is very clear to people in the world that many in power are completely ignoring all of these egregious violations. So, number one, it sends a message to the world that there are at least some serious people who take this as something that needs to be addressed. And second, what kind of message are we sending to our younger generation that here we have overwhelming information that the president has committed all these violations and nobody wants to do anything about it. I think that we need to make it very clear that people are held accountable for wrongdoing and that no person is above the law. So to make that statement alone is, is worth it. We've been speaking with Elizabeth de la Vega. She's author of The United States versus George W. Bush et al. Thank you very much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thanks for having me.
the Republicans being in even more trouble in the Northeast. Let me give you the exact numbers. They're already close to being wiped off the map in the Northeast in the House of Representatives. Uh, they uh, Democrats hold 60 out of the 81 seats in the nine northeastern states. Okay, 60 out of the 81. Now, new set of elections coming up, and the Cook uh, Report, uh, among other uh, analysts uh, that are nonpartisan, look at the numbers and say, uh, out of what the Republicans wanted to do is they got killed in, in 2001. They lost 11 seats in the Northeast, right? Uh, so what they want to do is they wanted to attack those 11 seats because their best chance at unseating an incumbent is in their first re-election campaign. If you, if you don't get him on the first re-election, then your chance of ever getting him drops dramatically, right? So they got to mount a campaign. The problem is, out of the 11 that they wanted to get back, nine apparently are absolutely positively safe. There are only two that are in play. And people aren't really even quite sure if they're really in play. Now, on the Republican side, though, uh-oh, more trouble. Six incumbents leaving in districts where Democrats hold an edge already in uh, registration. And they're gaining on them uh, uh, in every category, including financing as well. And then there are three other Republican incumbents who apparently are in significant trouble as well. So let's do a quick little bit of math. Uh, let's say the uh, Republicans lose those nine seats, as it appears they will now. Then all of a sudden, the uh, Democrats would have 69 out of the 81 seats in the Northeast, and the Democrat and the Republicans would be clinging on to dear life with only 12 out of the 81 congressional districts in the Northeast. So, w what does that mean? That means, basically, the Republicans have. You know how they said Democrats gave up the South. Well, the Republicans, it appears, have given up the Northeast. They're not going to bother pretending to be moderate in any way, shape, or form. And if that means they lose a whole chunk of the country, well, I guess sad day for them. And what I, I'm amazed by as I read this story is that to this day, they don't get it. They don't understand that going further right isn't winning them any votes, especially in the Northeast. It, they have to come back towards the middle. They have to come back to a, a moderate position if any of them ever really held a moderate position, and they did, I remember. I remember the good old days when there were real moderate Republicans in the Northeast. People like Tom Kane, who, were the who was the governor of New Jersey. Uh, and, and, and by the way, Lincoln Chafee, to some degree, he became, had to vote with the Republicans more and more, of course, as he stayed uh, as a senator in Rhode Island, and that's what wound up costing him his seat in Rhode Island. But back in the day, I remember when Chafee was not that conservative. In fact, Lincoln Chafee voted against the Iraq war, the only Republican to do so back when he was in the Senate. Uh, and if you go further back, there were real, there used to be black Republicans in the Northeast. Do you, do you remember that? I don't know if any of you remember that, but yes, Congressman Franks, for example, right? I know because I was a moderate Republican from the Northeast. Uh, that creature no longer exists, okay? That is extinct. I just, you know, look, what the presidency is a unique thing because it devolves into a popularity contest, and our media treats it like a joke. They talk to you about, you know, who's going on vacation where. Obama was on vacation in Hawaii, so he's an elitist and he's going to lose. Uh, you know, John McCain is wearing $520 shoes. John Edwards got a haircut. Oh my God, then he had an affair. Forget about it. Now, what does this have to do with NAFTA or gas prices? or Iraq or anything, nothing, nothing, right? What does this have to do with how the country was governed in the last eight years by Republicans? 
nothing. Shush, shush, shush. So the presidency is a weird animal that winds up devolving into this grotesque popularity contest that is usually has nothing to do with the issues. But on a case-by-case -case basis, on a race-by-race -race basis in, in the Congress, whether it's the House or the Senate, that's where you can see the real trends. And it, we don't go get every Republican, not even every Republican in the Northeast, and there are some districts that are still significantly conservative in the Northeast, and they're losing some of those, including one in Staten Island. But overall, you get a sense of the trend, and the trend is the country is not buying what the Republicans are selling anymore. And I, I, it's, it's a fascinating thing to watch because it's a, you know, as they say, it's a slow motion train wreck. And you're seeing the trains are colliding and it's the, the metal is going to get mangled and it's a terrible idea and you're yelling at them, you're going the wrong way and they won't listen. So what I'm curious about is when do the Republicans turn this ship around? When do they say, you know what, maybe we should head in the opposite direction. Maybe we should go towards the middle and use that as a new strategy. Because they, they got, you know, politically butchered in 2006, and it looks like it's going to be an equal or worse political bloodbath in 2008. Are they going to get it in 2009? Or are they going to keep going to the right? Because if they do, they might not exist, not just in the Northeast, but nationwide, they might get to a point where they're an untenable party. They're such a minority party that you almost have to have a new party that replaces them. And by the way, I, I, you know, we've talked about this before, and, and I want to emphasize it. I can see it, man. You know, we just gave you the story about the troops giving so much money to Ron Paul, right? This libertarian trend is real because people can relate to that. And that's something that is a real philosophy that Republicans can gather themselves around. And that's uh, partly uh, what Ron Paul represents. Uh, and that's a competing philosophy that uh, is worthy of having a debate with. Um, but it's not corporatist, and it's not in the pocket of big oil, and it's not for starting aggressive first-strike wars. That mentality is crazy and is being discredited with the, by the American people as we speak. But I think they're going to have to rebuild this uh, party from the ashes of its destruction I think after 2008, and the way they're going to have to go and say, hey, you know what, okay, uh, we don't want to be in the pocket of uh, big corporate America anymore, and we're going to have a new populist ring to it. Because I'm telling you, populism is here to stay, whether it's the Democrats or the Republicans. Because as people get a sense of what's happened to them over the last several decades, but certainly in the last eight years, they don't like it, man. I'll tell you what's happened, is that the rich have gotten much much richer. And the middle class knows what's happening. I mean, look, we gave you this stat on a couple of shows ago, but think about it. Median average income for a family in America has gone down. It's gone down, but not just by a little bit. It's gone down by $2,500 just in the last seven years. You think people don't notice that? You think people don't feel that? And as their income has gone down, uh, the gas prices have gone up. Inflation's going up now. Man, people are f get because here's the thing that when Rick Davis uh, talks about, oh, John McCain's on the campaign tra trail and he meets real people. Because you know why? They're not real people. <laughs> the Rick Davises and the John McCain's uh, and the whole entire Republican Party infrastructure at this point.
They, they haven't had to worry about gas prices in how long? I don't know if they ever worried about it, but if they did, it was probably about 30 years ago. Well, John McCain, of course, is married to Cindy uh, McCain, who has over $100 million, and they have eight houses, etc. And that, that doesn't mean that you can't feel people's pain, but they haven't even bothered to try for so long. I think they've forgotten how to do it. I want to break free. Why do I still have to vote? Please welcome Thomas Frank. Thanks so much. What a pleasure to have you. Careful, don't go off the, the back there. <laughs> I've done oh, yeah, that before, a long you know. fall. Now, Mr. Frank. I love the title of your new book, The Wrecking Crew, How Conservatives Rule. I mean, I agree, conservatives rule. High five! <laughs> Woo! All right. What you've misunderstood, Stephen, is the argument of the book is that conservatives suck. <laughs> but... But suck better than anybody else, right? <laughs> Number one that, when it comes oh, oh, yes. to sucking, I hope you're it's saying a, that. Extreme efficiency and okay. su now, suckiness. You're saying that, that, that uh, uh, they don't rule very well. That's your argument. Yeah, they, they what do you mean by that? I mean, they they've, been, they've been ruling for, for you know, the Congress uh, for most of the 90s uh, and for most of the aughts. Plus, they've had control of every other branch of the government. How could That's they right. not no, rule well? At, uh... They've stayed in power. Isn't that the objective of government? Yeah, I guess if you think about it, in one, in one, in one sense it is. They've been very good at winning elections. What yeah. they've actually been doing in Washington, D.C., though, is throwing the bureaucracies into reverse, you know, uh, selling off the government to, you know, the highest bidder. Or in some Isn't cases, that the, the quickest way to reduce the size of government? Is that redefine what the role of government is? The funny, you know, that's a that's a that's government a, doesn't do that. Government doesn't do that. You know, government yeah. is just welfare for people who can't put out their own fires. <laughs> that's a. It's an excellent suggestion, you know, just redefine the whole thing. Government isn't about, you know, looking after the general welfare. Government is, is, is about looking after, you know, our campaign contributors or something like that. The problem is that's not what we have the elections about. That's not what they were elected to do. What were they elected to do? I'll <laughs> bite. <laughs> I'd start with enforcing the laws. Okay, sure. But labor, you know, laws, 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 labor laws, laws Stephen? Labor laws? Yeah. Labor laws are very mutable. Who's to say... 
Who's to say what a hazardous work environment is? I mean, maybe OSHA. But if you sell OSHA off to a private enterprise to enforce the labor laws... Ah, very good idea. See, and this is what's been going on in Washington for the last, well, at least the last eight years. But if you go back further, as I do in the book, for the last 28 years, is basically turning over these operations to the private sector, where we really have no idea but what they're doing. government's like what a they're... business. Why shouldn't business run the government? Well, that's the funny thing, is it ain't a business. What do you mean, it ain't a business? You mean, isn't a business. <laughs> I just want to point out that that was grammatically incorrect. <laughs> I believe I believe you you nailed me, Stephen. I did nail you exactly. How's that feel, by the way? How's that feel? Good. Stings a little bit, but it's a good feeling. But it's not a business. Okay. What 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 is it then? Government is the uh, expression of the uh, you know public will. Takes and money though. A, takes money. Does take money? Makes yes. it a business. <laughs> Very good. It does. It, uh, it takes money. It takes money. Because it involves it takes money. money. Yes, because it involves absolutely. money. It's a business. Is the treasury there's a department deficit, a business? There's a debt. Here's like, the interesting thing. Once you start treating it as a business, you know, once you start turning over government operations to the market, you're not talking about democracy anymore. What you're talking about is plutocracy, rule by the wealthy, rule by the market. People who know what they're doing, that's why they got rich. Yeah, there's a... All right, hey, who do we a, give the government to? Yeah, the losers right. of the world? <laughs> you know, there's no silver or bronze in life. <clears throat> there's only people who rule and people who follow. There was a time, there was a time in this country when a lot of people shared your views on this, Alex. A lot of people share my views now, sir. <laughs> um, maybe so, but hopefully it's not the people who vote. Uh-huh. It's those well, who we, own. We hey, shall look, see. Those, those, those tell who, me, those tell who me, own, tell those me who something. Own, agree. Tell me something that the conservatives have done to the government that has made our life worse. Well, if you let's say you live in New, let's say you live in New Orleans. No one lives there anymore. <laughs> All right, all right, all right. Okay. Well, let's okay, say I'm on the moon. that one out. I ride a unicorn. <laughs> okay. Let's say, let's so say, it's a fantasy say, book. Okay. Let's say, and, and the hobbits are in trouble. What happens next? Let's say you are a meat packer in the state of Iowa. Uh-huh, yep. And uh, you're 13 years old. Yep. You probably shouldn't be, you know, working on the uh, killing floor when you're 13. Oh, uh, why? Because I don't want to build character? <laughs> But here's, here's the point is, I know that conservatives say, like Grover Norquist has said, he wants to make the government so small that he can drown it in a tub. But my question for you is that even if they do that, who's paying for that water? I hope it's not the taxpayer. <laughs> you hope, yeah, they, exactly. The, you know, the really interesting thing is that they haven't shrunk government. I mean, it's grown. I mean, you vote for these guys. You, you but they've made it weaker, you, you know, you for sure, for these right? Guys. They've made the government weaker. They've turned it over to your buddies in the private sector. They've turned it over to the big contractors, mm -hmm. the big campaign donors. And what's so wrong with that? Well, those people don't answer to you and me. They don't answer to we the people, Stephen. They answer to... Stockholders! They, yeah, they answer to the stockholders. They answer to he the boss. Meet the new boss. <laughs> it's the same as the old boss. You know, it is. It is. Thomas Frank, thank you so much for joining us. The book is The Wrecking Crew. I was living in a devil town. Didn't know it was a devil town Oh Lord, it really brings me down About the devil town And all my friends were vampires Didn't know they were vampires Turns out I was a vampire myself
Bush's approval rating remains strong on eBay. It's the Onion Radio News. This is Doyle Redland reporting. The White House reports today that President Bush continues to enjoy a 94% positive feedback rating on eBay, something no modern U.S. president has been able to achieve in or out of office. Press Secretary Tony Snow told reporters that the president recently received an A rating, followed by an unprecedented 11-plus signs. U.S. eBay users know this is a president you can trust, who's going to package your goods with care, he's going to send them via UPS, Uh, in a timely manner. However, the president's critics say they are still waiting on a collection of miniature glass owls they bought in March and have not yet received. Doyle Redland for The Onion Radio News. Sweet, sweet girl But it's a cruel, cruel world A cruel, cruel world My pins are none too strong, Katie Hurry up, Mrs. Brown I can feel it coming down And it won't take none too long But since you said goodbye The polka dots fill my eyes And I don't know why old friend Jack Caffrey, wrote something on CNN.com that I just love. You know, the reason I like Caffrey is because he thinks a lot like me. I mean, i got to be honest, right? And he's like, look, I, he's like, I'm concerned that this John McCain guy's an idiot. That, you know, we're way too deferential to him. And he's like, I smell George Bush. So let me give you direct quotes from his editorial. He says, it, it occurs to me that John McCain is as intellectually shallow as our current president. When asked what his Christian faith means to him at that Saddleback saddle uh, Ranch, uh, I keep calling it a ranch, it's not a ranch, Saddleback Forum at uh, Rick Warren's uh, place, he said his answer uh, was a one-liner. Quote, it means I'm saved and forgiven. Great scholars have wrestled with the meaning of faith for centuries. McCain then retold the story we've all heard a hundred times about a guard in Vietnam drawing a cross in the sand. Now, he didn't get to disputing that story. But he's like, look, that's my first warning sign. Gives a simplistic answer. Like, remember when Bush gave that answer, what's your favorite philosopher? And he's like, uh, uh, Jesus Christ. Because he doesn't know any philosophers. And I bet you he thought he was so clever that day. He's like, oh, I got him on that one. <laughs> it was a good save, and I got my religious point in. Yeah. By the way, remember, I'm a Republican at the time. I'm thinking of voting for Bush. I'm trying to decide between Bush and Gore. When I saw that answer, I was like, oh. Okay, we got an issue here, right? Because not because he believes in Jesus Christ. They all believe in Jesus Christ, right? I was like, that is a dumb answer. That is somebody who just didn't know a single philosopher, okay, and pulled 
All right, I won't get get into where he pulled it out of. Okay, so that was that was Bush waving a red flag at me, and I was like, okay, duly noted. Anyway, so uh, uh, Cafferty goes on. He says, one after another, McCain's answers were shallow, simplistic, and trite. He showed the same intellectual curiosity that George Bush has, virtually none. Okay, I love when Cafferty goes off. And then he ends the article by saying this. George Bush's record as a student, military man, businessman, and leader of the free world is one of constant failure. And the part that troubles me most is he seems content with himself. Uh, he will leave office with a country $10 trillion in debt, fighting two wars, our international reputation in shambles, our government cloaked in secrecy, and suspicion that his entire presidency has been a litany of broken laws and promises. Our citizens' faith in our country ripped to shreds. Yet Bush goes bumbling along grinning and spewing moronic one-liners as though nobody understands what a colossal failure he has been. And here's a killer line at the end that I love. I fear to the depth of my being that John McCain is just like him. Thanks for listening, everybody, and a huge thanks to Julia for doing another fantastic job producing today's edition of the show. I wanted to mention again, as I did last time, that we have relaunched the blog at bestoftheleftpodcast.com. The basic idea is that we want to do in blog form what we already do as a podcast. Just take uh, anything and everything we find online that qualifies as the best of the left and post it on the blog. Uh, you know, maybe some commentary of our own mostly links to other things we find around the web. Uh, I hope it'll become a, a great service as, as we try to, to have the podcast be a great service. Um, so I really encourage you to go check that out, bestofleftpodcast.com. There's a button on the side. makes it really easy to subscribe to the blog, and you can get all of our updates, which will include not only uh, the, the new updates, with uh, with articles and, and videos and different things like that, all having to do with great, uh, you know, left-wing politics or anything else interesting we find, but it'll also include all the show notes for the podcast as well. So that's what's happening on the blog, and uh, I am g I'm mentioning it again, and I'll continue to mention that we're taking applications for bloggers. Uh, basically, the way any standard... Um, you know, great blog that is able to produce lots of great information um, for its audience or for its readership is uh, is run by lots of bloggers. So um, if you're interested in being a part of that team, uh, you know, you read a lot of politics, you, uh, you check out a bunch of stuff online, and you'd be interested in sharing what you like, uh, you know, what you see, what you find interesting, what you think um, a great big, uh, you know, liberal audience would be interested in seeing, uh, then you can become a blogger on the best of the left and help spread that word. So send me an email at hippiesympathizer at gmail.com. That contact information is on the website and just let me know you're interested and we'll go from there. As you almost certainly know, for the past uh, month or so, uh, we've been talking about the podcast awards that have been going on, uh, the nomination process is over and I just wanted to let you know that I found out a few minutes ago that the voting isn't going to start for uh, a few more weeks. 
so you, you get a you get a little bit of a break from me talking about it. Uh, but I just wanted to give you the update that uh, sometime after October 19th is when the actual voting will start. So if we make the cut uh, and uh, and if we have the chance to vote for the best of left uh, for a podcast award, it'll be after October 19th, and uh, I'll give you more updates as they uh, as they come out. In the meantime, I just want to really encourage you to uh, get in touch with me and uh, give me your thoughts on the show. Uh, anything, uh, anything you have to say, I just want to let you know all the ways you have to uh, to contact us. Uh, first and foremost, the uh, the PodTrack survey is uh, up on the website. I really encourage everyone to, to uh, take that survey. It gives us more detailed information about who's listening, what you like, what you don't like, and uh all the details like that. So it's a, it's a great help for us, uh, and, and it's right on the top of the page on the sidebar of the website. Uh, other than that, you can le- leave comments in the show notes of each show, um, comments on the on the blog, or send me a direct uh, email at hippiesympathizer at gmail.com. And I, I love to hear from you guys. I love to hear uh, comments on the show, feedback, anything like that. And I've just been realizing recently that I've been doing a terrible job of encouraging you to write in and, and actually giving out the contact information on the show um, because I just forgot. So I uh, just wanted to uh, reaffirm that, uh, that it is easy to contact us and we really encourage you to do it. So that's it for today. Coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the border and conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C. My name is Jay and this has been the Best of Left podcast. Coming to you from bestoftheleftpodcast.com. Five lines now, black and white. You took a part of picture that wasn't right.